So I'm sad to report that just a little bit of our UU history got the shaft this week. It literally packed up into a box crate, headed towards the dustbin of history. You see, every state, you know what I'm talking about, every state has two statues that the state legislatures choose to represent them in something called Statuary Hall that's in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. And for the last 75 years, one of California's two statues has been the figure of Reverend Thomas Starr King, who was a Unitarian minister in the 1800s. I said it stood for 75 years, Because this last Wednesday, he was replaced by almost unanimous consent of the entire California General Assembly by Ronald Reagan. Thomas Starr King had a wonderful history, and he packed it all in into just 39 years, as old as I am now. He died very, very young. He was born a universalist, but became a Unitarian, but kept an affinity for a theological virtue that the universalists were known for and the Unitarians were not when he said, the universalists consider God too good to damn them. The Unitarians consider themselves too good to be damned by God. Now, the reason that California celebrated him for these 75 years with the statue is that he was an ardent, an ardent abolitionist. And he implored California in the 1840s and the 1850s not to become a Confederate state, not to become a slave state. And so after his untimely death at age 39, it was said in the New York Times, he was credited with saving California for the Union. Now, I thought about this great and noble history and story of Reverend Thomas Starr King. And by the way, he will continue to live on, not just through my preaching today, but through many people's preaching and also one of our seminaries, Divinity Schools, one of our UU seminaries bears his name in Berkeley, California. But I was thinking about Thomas Starr King and his story and his legacy and my thoughts went very quickly from the sublime to the ridiculous this past week. As I sat on Wednesday afternoon watching Night at the Museum 2, Battle of the Smithsonian. Now what connects these two stories is this. It's the question, what happens? What happens to all of history's forgotten heroes when they get packed up and shoved into the dustbins or to the crates and when history says, okay, thank you for serving for so long. We are sort of done with you. It's time for you to move on into the shadow and out of the sunlight. Now, it is not at all that Reverend Thomas Starr King was likely to show up in night at the Museum to the Battle of the Smithsonian, come back to life as an action hero. It was said in his obituary, but very kindly, overly charitably. Well, he had an odd appearance. He was sickly almost his entire life. And so the New York Times said this, that nature robbed the flesh so that she might more lavishly adorn the mind and the heart and the soul of the man. It's just a way of saying he was sort of funny looking. Well, you all know, I think, even if you haven't seen it, and I'm not going to encourage you to go see it. I think you all know the basic plot of Night at the Museum, the first one, and now Night at the Museum 2, the Battle of the Smithsonian. You all know it, basically? All right. 
Statues come back to life. Basically, that's what it is. This is the ingredient, and this is why these movies make hundreds of millions of dollars. You take one hapless Ben Stiller, and he's very good at being hapless. You take some ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic hocus-pocus gobbledygook. You add a lot of computer-generated imagery and some talking or at least roaring dinosaurs. And you bring Napoleon back from the dead and Teddy Roosevelt and Sacagawea, and there you go. You got the recipe for a movie that's going to make a lot of money. That's what happens. That's what happens. They all come back to life because of those ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic, hocus-pocus, gobbledygook kind of stuff. You don't really need to know the rest of the plot. I'm not leaving too much else out. And actually, in some ways, I can't believe it took so long for this movie to get made. Because if you think about it, it's a very literal interpretation of something we have all seen many, many times, whether we've gone to a historical museum or a natural history museum. You ever hear this phrase? Where history comes alive. That's all this is. It's literalizing that metaphor. Now, it's a fun thought, and it actually is fun for kids. It's not really all that interestingly executed, though, I have to tell you. There's Amy Adams in it, who I'm very, very fond of, and she plays Amelia Earhart, but she speaks with such proper diction, and yet is so annoyingly gung-ho chipper that I think she's like Kate Hepburn on crystal meth. That's the closest thing I could come to, to, to sort of think about it that way. And the movie has a very kind of patina, a very, a very age of Obama kind of touch to it because the hero of the movie turns out to be the walking, talking Lincoln that's been sitting in his memorial in Washington, D.C. for all these years. And this gigantic Honest Abe at this point isn't just preserving the Union. He now has even a higher goal. He now is saving the entire universe. This is what happens. Now, there's one plot point that I did love. At one point, we're taken to the Air and Space Museum. You ever been there? The Air and Space Museum is part of the Smithsonian. It's awesome. I have probably been there over the space of 25 years, eight to 10 times. And I have to say, as old or the older that I get when I go there, it never has lost its majesty. It never has lost that sense of magic when I go there. And at one point, because of that ancient hieroglyphic Egyptian gobbledygook hocus pocus thing it brings all those planes all those planes from the spaceships all the way back to the Wright brothers first rickety looking plane that they put together it takes them all into the air at the same time you have the entire history of modern avionics brought to life that was really cool that was really cool because I got to tell you over the years that I've been there I always wanted that to happen that's you know the hope is that everything can take flight because that's what it was intended to do. Now, of course, this one magical, wonderful scene in the movie takes place right after you have about 10 bobble-headed miniature Einstein singing, that's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. <laughs> and I got to say, that's the most annoying thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so other than that, it is a color-by-the-numbers plot. It is a feel-good story, good for families, not meant at all to tax the brain, and it certainly takes a lot of liberties with the historical record. I mean, it brings George, General George Custer back to life, and he was a pretty vicious, arrogant Indian killer. 
and somehow we're just sort of supposed to forget about that and we're supposed to find his redemption in the story because he finds his courage. But anyway, what I did like about the movie is this, is that in its own fanciful and fabricated kind of way, it reminds us that story and history are not dead. That history is a story, and through this preposterous movie, we have the opportunity to re-enter the story of things and recognize that it's not just long, long ago and far, far away, but history still is ongoing here in our midst right now. And if you're a hapless Ben Stiller character, then you get to participate in it. Now, this insight, not bad genius at all, but still very basic and important, It's very different than the way I was taught history. When I was boarding school, when I was in high school, I was taught what they call the great man theory of history. You know this? Learn your famous people, mostly men, sometimes a few women sprinkled in there. Learn who they are and learn what they did, and you will have a concise and in some ways best history of the world. This is improper. There are so many, so many, so many other stories worth telling. And so some people, as a corrective to this understanding of the great man understanding of history, want to get you down and understand the facts. That's another way that I was taught history. Memorize, memorize, memorize. Conquered out of Worms. was the Battle of Trafalgar. Anyone got any other ones you remember? Wow, this didn't take with you, obviously. The point is, I can't remember the dates for these things, but that's one approach to teaching history. Know the dates, know the facts, and then you will have been said to have learned history. Well, there is a deeper and different way than this as well, too. Learn the story. Learn the story of people who lived long ago and far away. I remember when I had a sophomore class in European history, and the teacher had such a different methodology, and I really fell in love with it. She had spent most of her professional life retelling the story of this particular medieval town in Germany, really painstakingly getting all the details of what the story of their lives were like. And she knew how to teach to sophomores in college because she started to introduce this story to us by letting us know that one of the most interesting historical records she found was how many units of beer everyone in the village was offered every day. And that it was their primary way of feeding themselves and drawing in nutrition. Sort of stupid and dangerous thing to say to 19-year-old people in college, but still, nonetheless, it took us in because we started to hear the story. And then there's a fourth way of teaching and inviting people into history, which I think is the best way. It builds upon what we've talked about just now, but takes it an extra step forward. It says the story of history is not done, that it repeats, sometimes rhymes, and that you And we are invited to live the story as well. For example, if you read, as many of us have, either in book form through the HBO miniseries, the story of the history of the relationship between Adams and Jefferson, you will see that with these two great men and in the amazing times that they lived, that what they were really fighting about was the proper role of religion in the early republic. And what we get to see is, fortunately or unfortunately, it just is, is that the culture wars that we would somehow deem novel or new in our age, in our time, about the proper role role of religion in this 
religiously diverse, pluralistic republic, it is nothing new. The story continues, and we are a part of that story. Now, particularly in religious communities, I think religious communities above all else are about telling stories, are about finding the connection between shared past history and saying the history is not done and finished, but it continues on in our very lives. And that story that we inherit, like this chalice over here, it only stays lit because we light it and thousands of others light it. It is a story given into our hands for keeping. One of my favorite, favorite gospel tunes is called, Were You There? I've talked about this before. Were You There? It says, Were You There? Were You There when they crucified the Lord? Now, too often, this is interpreted in a lot of religious communities as saying the two most important questions we can ask ourselves, religiously, spiritually, is this. Were you there? Are you aligned with what happened long ago and far away so that you might be there when the time comes, judgment day or a whole bunch of other ways that religious communities call it? Were you there so that you can be where you need to be when the end comes? Too often for our own lives, this way of teaching religious story, religious history is like getting an absentee slip from the present and from our own lives. Malcolm X preached about this many, many years ago when he pointed out that many people in his community would go to church week after week after week after week and hear the story from the prophet Ezekiel of the Valley of the Dry Bones. It's a really amazing, rich story. But what Malcolm X said is that the people in the church would weep and worry over these ancient Valley of the Dry Bones but shed not a tear for their own struggles and their own sorrows. And what was going on in their very lives. It was kind of like Latin. A dead story. Long ago and far away. So I think the most important question for us. As people from a liberal religious. Progressive religious perspective. Is not were you there. And not where will you be. But are you here. Are you here right now. In the present. Fully being who you are. And who you are called to be. This desire For are you here? Are we here? It gets to the heart of all authentic yearning for true spirituality. It leads to the kinds of writings that I know some of you take a lot of strength from, and I have too. The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle. I know quite a number of you have read that. It's a very wise teacher in a lot of ways. A lot of respect that I have for this kind of spirituality. But there is also a shadow side to this kind of spirituality. It can be the implicit assumption... That we are here by ourselves alone. In a presence that is cut off from the past and divorced from the future. It can be a form of spiritual narcissism. In which we eventually conclude that the only thing is real is my experience. And maybe you will say your experience is real too. But there is no common bridge that gets us to understand that although we interpret it differently. There is nothing but experience. And we share it with each other. This kind of spiritual narcissism is ultimately a recipe for loneliness. A real kind of loneliness that negates the power of community in our lives. So actually I think there's a deeper way of understanding that old gospel hymn, Were You There? When they say, were you there? Were you there when they crucified the Lord? To say that reality is still going on in our midst. And as you use, we don't want to say that's the only question worth asking. But to rephrase it a little bit, I would say, were you there? Were you there 
when the Buddha sat for the very first time. That story is not finished. It is still going on in our midst. Bringing it even a little bit closer to home into our Unitarian history, were you there? Were you there when our great Unitarian sage Thoreau built his cabin in the woods and decided that he would live deliberately and awaken with intention? Were you there? Were you there when the Universalist Clara Barton seeing the immense sorrow and suffering and horror of our American Civil War said, I am called as a nurse to do something about this and founded the American Sanitary Commission, which became the Red Cross? Whether it's Thoreau in his experiments in deliberate living, whether it is Barton responding to a world in so much pain with the best, most compassionate, most loving hand and heart that she can muster. These stories are not finished. We can make them dead. We can teach them as a story of heroes long ago and far away. Or we can ask a deeper question. Were we there so we can be here? Because the need to awaken just as Thoreau tried in his life is still very much part of ours. And God knows the suffering and the sorrow in our life is here as well, too. It is not just a matter of saying the heroes did it. Reading their story, knowing their story, is an invitation for us to live our own more fully. Now, ours, our progressive religious tradition, is one that admits, that says right up front, everything in nature evolves including our spiritual selves, including our spiritual story. And so we should ideally revel in the many, many stories that there are by which we can grow spiritually. But something, it seemed, went awry, I want to say, maybe the last 50 or 100 years. Our UU tradition does not tell as many stories as it should. And even more importantly, we do not share with each other as many stories as we should. I have to tell you, that is my whole inspiration for doing spiritual cinema over the summer. Even something as silly as Night at the Museum too, is that it is a story. It is a story. I know that story moves so many of us and so many of you, because I've heard some of you talk about the power and the meaning that you've gotten from someone like Joseph Campbell the great mythologist who takes a look at so many of the ancient religious stories and says in so many ways, what they did, we can do here now. We are invited to participate in the ongoing creation. I love what an ancient Hasidic saying says, the ancient mystical Jewish tradition. It said very simply this, that God created humanity simply because God loves a good story. God loves many good stories. As progressive religious folks, this is our greatest challenge, that we do not have one story, one single story that we believe exhausts and is better than all other stories. To say, this is the only true one, this is the best one, align yourself with this one, and then you will grow spiritually. We believe there are many stories, not just one. But unfortunately, sometimes, and this makes me very, very sad when I've met some folks who are Unitarian Universalists for many decades, and they are still involved in the work, kind of like what happened to Thomas Starr King this past week, of taking apart someone else's story and wanting to put it in a box and crate it away and put it away. The negation of someone else's story 
will not grow our own story. Just as unthinking, unfeeling dogma is one of the traps for the arrested development of the orthodox soul, the biggest trap for us as liberal religious souls is the belief that criticizing other people's sacred tales is a way to grow ourselves. It is not. It is the opposite of what we should be doing, spending most of our time poking holes in other people's sacred stories pretty much will ensure that the holes in our own souls, in our own hearts, the ones that yearn for love and grace and peace and justice and compassion and sacred experience, that these holes in our soul will not be filled if we spend most of our time critiquing others. Now, many of us have the experience of perhaps coming into this community or other communities because we recognize old stories no longer had the power for us that they once did. When one story is insufficient and yields or starts to yield to a better or deeper story. For some of us, it's the story of the fact that the purely secular life, the life that has no religious transcendent dimension, that is only about success in the most narrow terms, that this story was not enough. And we wanted to find a deeper, different story. One of my own stories very much is that I had to let go of the romantic notion that the drinking life really was the creative life. I had so many models and so many mentors who, in one form or another, told this to me. And I believed it. Stories can be lies at the same time that they can be true. Many of us have the experience that the hidden life, hidden in all kinds of different closets... That this could never be enough. And that that was a false story as well. Now maybe you find yourself this morning. It's a sort of fancy 50 cent kind of word. Psychological word. It's one of my favorites. Liminality. That's when we find ourselves between and betwixt the old story that was. And we don't quite yet know the new story yet to be. I want to encourage you, as anxious as that place is, to stay there. It's a chrysalis moment. It's a generative time because it is then that you will no longer have to rely on the outmoded story that no longer fills you up and feeds you up. But don't rush towards the new story. Have it take shape and take place and space and fill up your hearts and your soul. So this past week, I was reminded of one of my favorite stories. It's a very recent story, and it is emblematic of the spiritual arc of many, not all and not exact one-to-one kind of ratio or coherence, but it is emblematic of many of our spiritual stories. And I'll tell it to you. It is about a woman who forecasts. Her job is always to look ahead and ahead and ahead. And as a result, she is never really here, never really present, always asking, where will I be, where will I be, where will I be, to the point that there is never a now. There is only a then and a then that is never filled up and never full. And she discovers one day that as things don't change, that she is not changing What she wants for herself more than anything else is just sheer experience, romantic experience, financial experience. She wants to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate experience, thinking that she can fill the soul, the hole in her own soul. 
just by gathering as much experience as she can. And then she gets very, very sad. She finds that all this accumulation, all this getting, does not make her more happy. And she enters the moments of despair, of consumed by this sadness that perhaps there is no hope for her because happiness cannot be bought or sold, she finds out, but she doesn't think she knows another way. And when she has everything that she wants, she finds that it is unsatisfactory. She goes into a very, very deep and dark place of despair and sadness, thinking that even perhaps she will end her life that perhaps there is nothing on the other side of just getting and getting and getting. But she chooses to soldier on in a very rigorous kind of way. She says this to herself, I must be good. The universe will make more sense to me if I am good and if I am righteous and I do everything that I am supposed to do and perhaps no harm will come to anyone who I love or anyone that I care about. But even that proves unsatisfactory because sorrow and sadness are still part of life and bad things happen to good people and it hurts. It hurts her because now she is good. But still, the world does not always make sense. But it hurts not like before. It's not about despair or sadness this time. She learns instead an even deeper lesson, humility. And she says to herself, I am not God, and I will not play God. And then very slowly, one day after another, after another, after another. Through all of life's imperfections, through all of the things that don't work out exactly as they should, if I could make them be the way I wanted them to be, she starts as a beginner. Every day, every moment is spent in the cultivation of who she is and what her gifts are. Practicing kindness, sharing real human presence. Ultimately, her mastery is fulfilling for her because through it, she recognizes that she is a blessing to other people. And every interaction, no matter how small, is an opportunity to grow her soul. Finally, she recognizes this and she experiences liberation and release from the jail of her life. She finds out that, yes, happiness cannot be bought or sold, but the secret is that it can be shared. And in sharing, it is magnified. Now, what I've just told you, switched up the genders a little bit there, is the story of Groundhog Day. It is, I have to say, my favorite modern spiritual story. I took out the part about, you know, repeating and repeating and repeating. But really, that's just a plot device in there because if you've experienced that level of despair, it can seem like every day, one after another, after another, after another, and everything changes. And you hope everything will change, but nothing ever does. By the way, this is also, if you want to read more about this, this is also, this movie is an incredible articulation of Kierkegaard's three stages of spiritual development. The aesthetic, 
experience for experience's sake, the ethical hoping that if I am good, everything will turn out for me as it should, and then finally the spiritual, where we give ourselves over to life without as much sense of expectation or wanting to get because we have given. One of the reasons I love this story of Groundhog Day is that when I looked at it again, I preached on it two years ago, I mapped it out right over our DNA here at Wellsprings, over our beliefs and values, and it fits almost perfectly. Sharing of spiritual gifts, the cultivating of those spiritual gifts day after day after day, not just the option, but the necessity of daily practice to grow so that we can grow. The idea that freedom only ultimately reaches its fulfillment in connection with other people, not in spite of them. And that final image of our beliefs that the burning bush is blazing everywhere. The universe is not done speaking. Our lives are not done producing wisdom. And that when that light shines within each and every one of us, we have, or at least Bill Murray has in Groundhog Day, a life that is charged full with the charge of the soul. So the next time someone asks me about Wellsprings and asks me a question, I'm going to ask them a question back. Have you seen Groundhog Day? And we'll take the conversation from there because that will be the start of telling the story. I would encourage all of you to get in the practice and in the habit of telling the stories that most occupy and fill up your heart. Yes, tell your story. And someone may say, I like your story and I like you. But I want to encourage you to do something a little bit deeper and different than that. It builds on your personal story. Tell your story and then relate it to another story. A story that the person who is listening to you might recognize. So that you are saying to that person, I, in my own small way, am like one of these great ones. One of these ones who aspire to a life of real spiritual depth and maturity. See, if you do this, you will make room in your own heart and in your own story for the larger story that will connect you with others. You will find in this way of storytelling... Something magical. You will find ultimately that there is not their story, my story, my story, your story. But that you enter into that depth of reality that says there is a truth called our story. And when you live from that place of knowing our story you will know what it means to never be alone. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Mysterious divine, whose creation is a story. May we know that in studying our past, we can look upon it with understanding, forgiveness, appreciation, 
so that we might be able to say, creation is not a finished product. It is not done long ago and far away. May we recognize that our story is not ours just alone as much as we might like to cordon off our lives from the rest of life and defend. Instead, may we find those places where our story connects with another story and connects with another story and connects with another story until ultimately we feel ourselves held, held and nourished and loved and challenged to be a full human being and to know that this is the glory of all of our stories. Amen.